Well, hello and welcome to another edition of Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. And another episode you do not want to miss out on because we have Olga from Ready Medi Clinic. She is an ARMP and she is going to tell us her story of escaping communism. She has a really good story about um, what her dad did to overcome some of the struggles in communism and now um, they live in America and so glad to have her in America and um, with that I will just let Olga take over. Olga welcome to our show. Thank you so much Sean I'm excited to be here. Tell us a little bit about um, where you're at now and what you do um, just briefly because we'll get into we'll get more into depth of that in later in the show and then we'll go um, back in your story um, starting out in Ukraine so where are you at now Olga? Okay so um, since we moved to the United States I have gone through several changes to what my career looks like Um, it all started with the nursing program early on but right now I am a nurse practitioner in a small clinic in Wenatchee Washington Um, I graduated last year and I love 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 what I do Um, I'm always very satisfied with my career choices but this is definitely has been extremely exciting so that's where I'm at in life and going back to school for a doctorate degree in in the spring Good for you, and we're, I'm looking forward to hearing more about, about your story and what you guys do um, special right now. So, um, But let's go back in many years ago and kind of give us a time frame and um, where you were at in the Ukraine when you remember about your dad and he was getting his um, engineering degree. Tell, tell us about that story. Yeah, so um, I was born in 1985. Um, The next year is when Chernobyl explosion took place. Um, I wasn't very near to that area, but definitely in that same country. Um, And in uh, early 1990s is when Soviet Union fell apart. Uh, And so I kind of got a little bit of that post-Soviet era when I started school. Um, And there was definitely a lot of socialistic, take on how to do school and and what everybody is expected to do with their lives. And so um, growing up around that, we grew up as Christians in the Christian household, and and my father believed in God very strongly. And because of that, he was persecuted quite a bit um, in Ukraine. And being in the Soviet country, if if you think differently from what you're supposed to be thinking, then you are not going to be liked very much. And so we all experienced that even as kids in the school. But for my dad in particular, um, he went to school as an engineer. Uh, His dream was always to build ships. And he got so, so close to that. It was the night before his graduation when he got got called into the KGB office. And he graduated with 4.0. But they said, well, we are not going to give you a diploma. And And he said, well... Why is that? Why did you let me keep going with school? And they said, well, we were hoping you would come in here right now and tell us that you don't believe in God anymore, that your education would help you realize that God is not real. And he said, well, quite the opposite. Like, I'm not going to do that. Um, And they said, well, we won't give you a diploma. And so my father became a coal miner for many years to support the family instead of having his engineering uh, career that he was hopeful for. Wow. That is a powerful story. And I just, 
I, I don't. I think it's hard for us in the United States to understand that. Sometimes we might not want to even believe it that that happens in other countries. Um, and thank goodness that in our country, at least for now, we have the First Amendment, what gives us a right to freedom of religion. And as of now, our government can't stop us from from doing that. And and it's important to stick to those principles. And I'm so glad that your dad stuck to his principles. And I'm sure that that led you to um, respect him even more and, and probably want to even model your dad even more. So that's, that's a very, very powerful story. And almost just, it's just crazy to think about that, uh, that, that, that other, that in other countries that happens. So thank you for sharing that story, Olga. So your dad became a coal miner to support the mm -hmm. family. Okay. Yeah. Coal miner. So that was in his 20s when he got the engineering degree. And then in his 30s, that is when the Soviet Union fell apart. And he was um, very open to going back to school. And he actually went to a Bible seminary. At that point, Christianity was a little bit more embraced. And uh, the colleges were allowed to open up with um, seminary programs and whatnot. And so he traveled quite a bit for a few years and became a pastor. He did not uh, work as a pastor or did not become one within the church, but he had that education and that served him well um, for some time while he was still working as a, um, as a coal miner. And then in his uh, 40s, early 40s, we moved to the United States. Uh, and he, the very first thing he did was he said, I don't know English language and I'm going to learn. And he went back to college pretty much immediately within a few weeks of moving to the United States and started with English second language classes and moved on and became a certified nursing assistant, and then that led to um, his degree in medical laboratory technology. So dad's got three careers in life, and he was always very passionate about education. And the one thing that he'd always say, I am so excited that I'm able to do what I do uh, and to be allowed to do it. Basically, pursue your passion, and there isn't any way he could have done much of it back in the old country. Wow. Uh, that's a great story. What a wonderful man. I'd love to meet your dad someday. Um, so tell us, Olga, I think kind of how you kind of got into the medical field was because of your dad. Tell us how that happened. Yeah. So um, I was 13 when I started seventh grade here in East Wenatchee, Washington, and did seventh grade, eighth grade. By about mid-ninth grade, I was, I was tired of uh, the high school drama. I think, I think once you go through different experiences in life, you mature quicker. And I think that's what happened in my case. Seeing my 13-year-old, for example, at this point, and remembering how I was at 13 is definitely <laughs> very different, which is, in a way, is great, but he doesn't have the experiences that I had, uh, right. being very different from the rest of the kids who came from communist families, for example, even um, after the fall of Soviet Union, it was, you could tell, you could sense a big difference there with how you were treated. So my child, thankfully, does not have that anymore. So um, by about 15 and a half, I was sick of school. And so I laugh at myself. I say I'm a high school dropout. So I, I walked out of, of ninth grade and I said, I'm going to take homeschool and I'll finish it and I'll get into college. And so it took me six months to finish um, my high school years. Um, and by the time I showed up in, in the local college, Wenatchee Valley College, I remember applying. And I, that, was, that was 
probably before I even turned 16, shortly before that. And I brought my application, I brought my diploma, and I said, I would like to apply for some prerequisite nursing classes. And um, the gal at the at the desk, she looked up and looked at my birth date and said, is this a joke? <laughs> and I was so flustered at that point. I said, what do you mean? No, this is legit, you know, and she looked it all up and called the school and whatnot and said, yep, it is legit, you know, and so that's how I registered for my first set of classes. And shortly before that happened, my dad was already in college, of course, and he took me to the nursing hall and he said, knowing you and your character and whatnot, I feel like you would be a great nurse. And I said, Dad, um, I don't know. I kind of wanted to go into accounting or something like that. I said, I like the computer work. And uh, he said, well, let's we'll just give it a try. And so that first year in college, I was taking prerequisites for nursing. And he was taking prerequisites for medical laboratory technology. And a lot of them were similar classes. So we took like anatomy and physiology and the chemistry and microbiology, all of that together. And Dad was there supporting me and helping me grow up, basically. How cool so is when that? I was, yeah, yeah. Who, who went to college with their dad and enjoyed it, right? <laughs> yeah, that doesn't happen uh, very often, I don't think. Yeah, yeah. Well, I can say I did, and I enjoyed it very much. Dad would always buy me snacks in between classes, so that was important, too. <laughs> so um, shortly thereafter, um, a year into the prerequisites. I applied through the nursing program and got accepted and started on my own. That's where I really had to buckle up and, and really know that I'm an adult now and I got to do this thing and I got to do it right. So that's what started my nursing program education. And since then, I've done many more things when it comes to my career, but it's all been nursing based. So and I have my dad to thank for that. So you graduated the nurse. How old were you when you graduated with a nursing degree? I was 19. So I ended up getting married shortly before my 18th birthday um, to a guy from Russia, from Siberia. And uh, that wedding kind of put a damper on some of my plans. And so I ended up taking six months off of the nursing program to get married and get settled as a, a young wife and um, went right back to school and finished off with my RN. So. If I didn't take that half a year off, I would have been probably 18 when I graduated. Yeah, I don't know if there's been a younger graduating nurse since then. Um, so, so did you go out into the field and start working right away when you were 19? Right away, yeah. So my very first job was actually in an operating room as a circulating nurse. So my very last quarter in the nursing program, I got a preceptorship at Wenatchee Valley Medical Center at that point, now Confluence Health, and um, I was trained by phenomenal nurses over there. I have so much respect for, for all the staff over there, and so um, before I even had my final in my last class, um, I was offered a job over there as an RN, so that was my first job ever. Um, I guess, outside of picking cherries um, as a teenager. So that was my first job. And I stayed there up until this new gig in, a, in some capacity just because I started out full-time and then started having my children. I have three boys. Um, and so with, with um, those changes in life, my phenomenal manager at the time, Kelly Zellifro, she was just 
helping me with the hours and coming back and part-time or pool position. So whatever worked for both of us, we made it work. And so um, then after that, when I came back into full-time, when uh, my third son was a little bit older, um, I decided to pursue education further. And I looked at RN first assistant programs. And I really liked one specifically called NIFA. I, I really enjoyed my education from there. And the training that I got was all on site um, where I worked already with the surgeons that I have uh, great respect for. And so they trained me and I became an RN first assistant. Um, but meanwhile, there was another father figure in my life who, who was a friend alongside me. He's a physician assistant at, um, in orthopedics at Confluence Health, Greg McDonough. Uh, so Greg is a phenomenal physician assistant, and he, he has two daughters, probably younger, a little bit younger than my age, and he always told them, you know, you have to get your education. And so I felt, I kind of fell under that category for him, and he always would say, go back to school, become a nurse practitioner. Nurse, nurse practitioners are, are great, you know, and so, and of course, with him being a physician assistant, he knew what the job entailed, and so he told me a lot about it. And so that second father figure in my life was just the, which is the push I need, just like back in the day when my dad took me to the nursing hall and, and Greg did the same thing. And so finally, after a few conversations with him, I said, okay, okay, fine. I'll email the schools. I'll start looking like thinking it's probably not going to happen. I won't get accepted. So, and yeah, that's been a little bit over three years. And, and here I am a nurse practitioner and I'm thankful to him for kind of helping me with that initial push. Oh, what an inspiring story from a high school dropout to a nurse practitioner. That's pretty inspiring. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> Anybody well, I, can do this, right? <laughs> and I think, um, I think I'm sure that it sounds like you had some great mentors in your life and especially your father, I think, uh, you know, probably was a great role model for you. So um, kudos to him for sure. Thank you. Yeah. I'll, I'll pass that along. So where did you go to nurse practitioner school? So I looked at very, a big number of different schools. So there's a wide range of what's available right now. And I remember listening to your podcast where my partner, Carl Lambert, took place. You guys were discussing different nurse practitioner programs and they were called the mills, nurse mm -hmm. practitioner mills. And so for me, I did contact some of those and they were the easiest ones to get into. And it was um, it just seemed a little off to me because I wanted good education. I didn't just want a degree because I knew how important it was to be a knowledgeable provider, not just a provider with a degree. So I um, looked and looked and almost got trapped in one of those mills. But then the one that kept on constantly coming up is Frontier Nursing University. And it is one of the oldest nursing programs, nurse practitioner programs in the nation. They are known for their midwifery program, their number one midwifery program in the nation. And uh, as of U.S. News and World Report of last year, I believe they're either number five or number six, that's family nurse practitioner program. And that is the program that I attended. And so um, that program is was in 2019 was just below Yale, I believe. Or, um, nurse practitioner program. All right. So awesome. I, yeah, I, those numbers really spoke to me and the fact that they had amazing passing rates from the first time of nurse practitioner examination. Um, 
the national exam. Uh, as of 2020, they just came out with data. It was 99% passing. So that was, I was one of those 99%. So I, those numbers spoke highly to me. And the fact that they have a great program that is online, but it incorporates some time in the university, that was important to me as well. So uh, I did not have a bachelor's degree at that point. So I applied for the bridge program, which was basically bridges the gap between associate's level and master's level. And I like that idea because it gave me more education in the nurse practitioner world. So getting a bachelor's degree elsewhere, bachelor's of nursing, you still have to take all of those extra classes to get more credits. And I did not like that because that's probably not the knowledge that I was going to use in life. Um, but if I got more nursing, nurse practitioner type um, education, I, I felt like I would do so much better. And I was spot on with that. I feel like I had a lot of the nurse practitioner classes in bachelor's level, and then I moved up into master's program, and I did exactly the same thing, only on master's level, so a little more comprehensive. And so doing it twice for me was priceless. Uh, and I unfortunately, that bridge program was um, discontinued shortly thereafter. Um, probably a couple more classes after myself. Um, so um, they don't do that anymore, but there are some schools that do. And I feel like that was priceless for me in my career and, and my comfort level going out to practice. So um, I did the bridge year. I got into an accelerated program, which was slightly above full-time credits and got that done, everything in the course of three years. Um, I was on campus several times uh, for testing, for skills, education, um, and it was such a phenomenal experience. I definitely recommend Frontier Nursing Universities to all of those nurses out there looking for uh, options right now. And how many years were you a nurse before you went to nurse practitioner school? I was a nurse for around 15 years. In, in the OR, basically, most of the time? Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the uh, OR, um, I did a little bit of uh, PACU, so uh, admissions and recovery after surgery, but it was all in the same department. Um, also, um, I became an RN first assistant and, and kind of stopped doing the nursing part of it and moved into uh, actually physically assisting on a regular basis where I could finish out with suturing and, and take care of what needs to get done during the case as well and assist the, the surgeon. Um, I did, my passion from the beginning was orthopedics at that point. I really, really enjoyed it as a, first of all, as a scrub nurse. And then when I went into my role as an RN first assistant, I did a lot of general surgery, ENT, lots of neck surgery and um, urology. Those were the three specialties that I I really enjoyed when I was an iron first assistant. Quite the experience, for sure. You, do you um, miss surgery at all? I do. I, I miss my people over there. They were my tribe for such a long time, and a lot of very bright people, of course. And it was always a privilege for me to work alongside, you know, highly educated professionals. Um, so people the most, probably. What I don't miss is... Um, having asleep patients. I like patients who are awake, who I can speak to. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, the, but the team environment in the OR was absolutely phenomenal, and that's what I missed the most. Plus, I still think that the surgery center I worked for was 
the best surgery center on the planet. They really have their, their thing together. So, um, but as far as patient interaction, what I do right now is priceless for me personally. Awesome. So tell me, uh, after you graduated, you did have some other job offers. You chose ReadyMedi Clinic. So tell me what ReadyMedi offers that the other places didn't. Yeah, so my um, experience as a nurse practitioner student was a little bit unique just because COVID hit right in the middle of my experience and there were changes with placement and whatnot, but um, ReadyMedi stayed faithful the whole time to me as a student. And so I I got a lot of my primary care hours here. I got my specialty hours elsewhere. And I was so happy to come every day and see the smiles on everybody's faces, even though life got so rough for healthcare in general with COVID. And so, but they always welcomed me. Um, and it really opened up my eyes as to how different healthcare can be in a small clinic, um, varies greatly from a big organization. Big organization, of course, has a lot of different, um, how should I put it, uh, privileges, or they are able to offer a lot more because they have specialty care right there in the house, and so it's a lot easier. But for us, we kind of have to figure out what the patient situation is, if they have insurance or don't have insurance, and can we just send a referral somewhere? Will they follow through with it? Will they know just how expensive it is? So we have to provide all that education. and. Unfortunately, for so many patients who say, I just can't afford it, I can't do anything, uh, we put the time in to really help out as much as we can here at ReadyMedi. And so that really caught my eye originally. So when I graduated and shortly before that, I started applying. And at that point, I wasn't thinking of ReadyMedi as my future place of employment. I kept on thinking, you know, Confluence Health. And so there were some offers from specialties. Um, a lot of surgeons that I worked with, and I have a lot of respect for, they they enjoyed my help in the OR, and so I was offered a few jobs in that respect, um, and it was probably the hardest decision of my life to, to really um, break away from Confluence Health and Hedger's ReadyMedi, just because, first of all, I always felt like in a big organization, I felt almost safer in a way as far as um, knowing that they're always going to be there. You never know what might happen to a small clinic. And so it was it was a difficult decision. But when I made my decision and settled to come to ReadyMedi, I haven't regretted it to this day. So it's been awesome. since, September, since September 2020. So um, do you get to use any of your surgery skills when you're on the job mm -hmm. at ReadyMedi? Absolutely. Um, whereas before I was able to assist and, you know, I would suture after surgery and whatnot. Right now I'm able to um, do a lot of small procedures on my own within my scope of practice from suturing lacerations. We do some urgent type care for our members over here. I'm able to, you know, drain abscesses and, and um, do a lot of dermatology as well because for patients, first of all, who do not have um, experience or do not have insurance, they're not able to go to the big organization dermatology and get that done. And then a lot of times it's really, really difficult to get in just because dermatology is so backed up all the time. 
So I'm able to do what's within my scope of practice as a family nurse practitioner. And what I really like is that I can take care of kids as well as adults, as well as seniors. We even have some patients out in nursing homes who we're able to go out and see. So it's a very wide variety of different experiences. So I'm able to really use um, my skills that I was taught as a nurse practitioner. That's cool. So do you mind telling me the story about uh, so our listeners and viewers can hear how, um, you know, to drain an abscess and then stitch it up. I, I, I kind of got that out of there. Um, and how that saved you guys is saved a patient a lot of time and a lot of money by having to go to either an urgent care clinic or, you know, ER. Can, can you kind of expand on that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Um, maybe not draining an abscess. A good a good example would be um, a patient with who ended up having melanoma, for example, okay. and um, so basically came in with with you know a questionable lesion on the leg, and we took a look at it, and it's like, well, this this does look like look suspicious, and so we have special ways of looking at these things, and so ended up taking pictures. Um, and then what we have here at our disposal, which is I consider it priceless, is we have Rubicon Consult, which is basically we take pictures, we write up a little history about a patient, and we put it into specialty um, consult um, program that we have. And so mm-hmm. we, we pay for that on a regular basis, but we always have all specialists at our disposal. And dermatology specifically is phenomenal for that because you can just send a picture and they can pretty right. much tell you what it is. And so there are um, specialists from all over the country, uh, mostly MDs. And once we get a report back from, from them, usually takes about 24 hours and they're able to tell us if this patient was in my clinic today, this is what I would do. And so having that consult is like the backbone of a lot of our questionable cases, which um, really for me as a new grad, it's a very important uh, tool and I use that on a regular basis. So that's, that's uh, awesome that you leverage technology like that. I mean, that's really cool that their technology yeah, is yeah. out there that you can do that. That's awesome. Absolutely. Uh, so um, results came back from that, and we ended up taking a small biopsy. Uh, biopsy was sent out. Uh, results were back in a couple days, and and yes, it was melanoma, and so needed the excision. But the patient didn't have insurance and no no money to even get into a big organization, but had a job and everything, and so they would have still had to pay a big chunk of that money. And so we also have a program called Sano Surgery that looks for different surgery centers all over the United States. And so we contacted them, and they looked for specific. Um, pricing in different areas. Seattle area has great prices, Spokane and all over the place. So because when actually was not affordable, she was able to go to Idaho, I believe, and get the excision done literally within within a couple of weeks of getting the diagnosis. And so it's been some time since then, and she's doing perfectly fine, and she had great care where she went. And uh, it was very affordable out of pocket for her. So she was able to to pay that without a problem. I love it. And that's one of the things that you guys do there is you guys advocate for the patients and 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 not just with care, but financially too. Um, I think yeah. a lot of times, yeah, I think a lot of times 
we take things for granted because, you know, we're in the system as healthcare providers. So, you know, we know who to call to find out, you know, what price and what service is the best. A lot of times patients don't. So thank goodness that you were there for that patient because you saved them a lot of time and a lot of money. Mm -hmm. This was actually my partner, Carl, was the one who took care of this patient. This is just a very striking example with melanoma. Yeah. But right. yeah, with little things as well, like you said, INDs and lacerations, uh, if they end up in the emergency room, for example, how many hours later will they get care? Because a lot of times, you know, they have heart attacks coming through the door. And so we're just able to take care of our, our members here. Um, so it's. It's a great, great system to be in for patients, especially those who don't have insurance. And remind our listeners and viewers, what, what does it typically cost a member to be a member per month? So per month, um, someone, I believe 18 to 50 years old, it's $55 a month. For a child below 18 years old, it's $20 a month. And for, a, for someone above 55, it's $79 a month. And I think so, it's like that 80 right. plus, just a little bit more. Right. So for $70 a month, essentially, that person that you took care of um, with the melanoma, you guys did that for all $70 a month. And maybe some little cost with supplies or something, possibly. Yeah, yeah. Of course, like the cost of labs that goes out, we're able to negotiate with um, our lab company, Quest. And so they're giving us cash prices. So, for example... CBC and CMP, they're both about 4 to $6. So um, that is nothing in comparison to what you see in okay. other places. Wait a minute. Stop that. CBC <laughs> for $4. Is that what you said? Yeah. I think okay. it's CBC $4 and something cents, and the CMP is $6 and something wow. cents. It's, Our yeah. local hospital charges $78 for a CBC. Yeah. So well, 28. we're able to provide it. Right. It's unbelievable. Thank you so much. It's 20 wow. times the cost. And that's just another, you know, that's just another reminder that why we're out here, why we do this podcast, because we want to educate and empower consumers that they have choices. And mm -hmm. we should, and even if their insurance company is a preferred provider or whatever, that's not always going to be the least expensive choice because think about it. Let's say the lab, for example, let's say it's $80. We'll do easy math and you pay 20%. Okay, you're going to end up paying $16 or you could go to you and pay cash for $4. So mm -hmm. it's just, you know, that's the goal of our podcast is to educate and empower consumers that they need to take charge of their own health care. And that includes the finances of it. Don't let an insurance company tell them what the best solution is because many times it's not the best solution. It is actually... Um, just a good solution for the healthcare entity and possibly the hospital. And that being said, stay tuned for our episode Thursday because we are going to be talking with um, Ethne Nance. We've had her on the podcast before, and she is going to talk about how insurance companies and hospitals are in collusion together to basically rip off patients. So don't miss that out. Don't miss out on that Thursday, eight to nine, eight a.m. to nine a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Don't miss out on that Thursday. So Olga. Um, that's an awesome story, how you saved somebody's money. And, you know, not only that, but you could have possibly saved their life because if they kept putting off care because they either couldn't get in or they um, couldn't afford it, you know, melanoma, once it uh, metastasizes, it's, it's trouble. So I'm glad that you were there yeah. to, to take care of that person. That's a great story, a great story of how direct primary care, you know, um, 
um, definitely uh, help save a patient for sure. So thank you so much for sharing that story. So what other things, one of the things I think you like about DPC is you get to build a relationship with a patient. Can you, can you tell us that as opposed to, you know, maybe traditional um, in traditional outpatient uh, um, offices where you don't, you know, you have five minutes for the patient. Tell us a little bit about how DPC is different. So direct primary care is built on patient relationships and really get to know your patient and a wellness model rather than a sickness model. Uh, so if I was to pick one thing, uh, one reason why I picked Ready Medi over any other job out there was because I get to spend time with my patients. And so right now on my um, panel, for example, eight-hour day, I have, I want to say, eight or nine patients. Uh, and so that means, yeah, I have 45 minutes to an hour with each patient. If I feel like I will need more time with that patient, I can easily add extra 15 minutes, even half an hour, and that won't be frowned upon just because we provide quality care. If uh, there's a day where we have some walk-ins and it becomes a little bit more hectic, then, you know, maximum will be. 14 patients a day, then what's 14 patients in an eight-hour day in, in the normal clinic day for providers in a different organization? Uh, that's nothing. 14 patients is nothing. For, for us, that's a busy day, you know? So um, I can come in. I can get to know the patient. We can chit-chat about the weather or politics if we want for the first 10 minutes, and really, they become comfortable with me. I become comfortable with them if it's my first time, and then we dive into the history and whatnot and medications and we're we're able to really really connect um and at that point the patient can open up and say hey this is what i have that's going on and maybe it's an issue that has been bothering them but they haven't been um able to open up about it to someone you know there are a lot of very private things going on when it comes to health and so i'm able to ask all those questions and really get the story because they feel comfortable with me I cannot imagine doing that in 10 minutes and have, you know, a young man say, you know, this pain in my scrotum has been bothering me for some time. Can you check it out? Like, they just won't tell me right off the bat. I really need to establish a connection and then uh, get that information out of them. It's not always easy. So, and that is where, um, you know, all my questions come in as a, as, a healthcare provider and I can really figure out what, what exactly is the cause of it. And then I still have enough time for an exam. I still have time to go out and ask my um, medical assistant to draw blood. And I still can make some recommendations and take him out to um, the front. And we also have a small pharmacy within the clinic and I can actually uh, provide him with the medications that he needs. And if he wants supplements, we also offer a lot of uh, natural modalities as well. And so there's always um, other things if the patient doesn't want to get started on medication, for example, if they need it. And so all of that gets fit into that one hour appointment and nobody feels rushed. We we feel like we got, we established a good rapport with the patient and um, are able to move on and say, hey, I want to see you two weeks later. I want to see you next week. And that all fits under that $55 a month or whatever it is. And so they can come back and see us twice a week if they have an ongoing issue. Uh, one of the things that I have a passion for is reversing diabetes and weight loss. We're actually starting a brand new weight loss protocol program right now, which um, I personally have been on it and I have had success with it. And 
a few of our other gals here have done well. And so, for example, I would invite that patient to come in for, you know, 45 to one hour appointment uh, every two weeks. And we sit down and really chat about it. How did you do the last two weeks? Let's weigh in. Let's talk about, um, you know, psychologically, what helps you stay on track, things like that. So I'm able to provide some counseling. And I might not make any recommendations at that point, but I will be that supporter they need. And so all of that fits into our model, you know, um, if they have to come in a little more often, especially in the beginning, we're able to provide that. Um, because the program is so phenomenal and DPC in general is phenomenal, we have been getting busier and busier and our patients are not able to see us as I, they did in the past just because we're getting busier and we're just getting out about what we do. And so we're doing everything um, it takes right now to um, provide our patients with what, with what we used to provide in the past, even if it means closing down our panels and just taking care of our existing patients, we will do that um, or hiring other providers to help us out as well. So uh, that is because we're able to provide that great care and patients love it and, and we love doing that. And so I, I did bring up with the, the owner, Carl Lambert, recently um, this this problem and I said they're not able to see us as often as they can. Maybe we should shorten the times with the patients and he said um, that's the last thing I want like we do not want to be that clinic who sees right. 30 40 patients a day that's not what we are and so we're we're looking for other ways right now awesome I love it yeah. So you mentioned it caught my ear and maybe it caught a lot of our listeners and viewers ears, but reversing diabetes, is it really possible to reverse diabetes? Now we're talking about type two diabetes, I'm sure. So is it really possible to reverse diabetes? It is definitely possible. We have had success here in our uh, clinic. Some patients through with the program were able to come off of medications and their A1C is within normal limits and their blood glucose, insulin levels, everything's within normal limits. One patient in particular who was on three oral agents and one um, uh, injectable insulin is now down to just metformin. So there are great success stories here. Uh, and then there are some who have been on just metformin, lots of pre-diabetes who are able to come off of metformin. Um, and I, for example, have strong family history of diabetes, and I kind of did a lot of research uh, on my own for myself um, as to prevention of diabetes. And I stumbled upon so much information out there and so many studies and different recommendations. And we kind of were able to create a program for that. And uh, who started it all was Carl Lambert. And I kind of picked it up from him as a student and then added some of my own modalities that I've learned over time. And um, we kind of created a great program. So that's it's possible. It's not easy for a patient. Right. Though, no, but that's it, awesome. That's awesome to hear. I, I personally, as a pharmacist, I don't think for type 2 diabetes, I don't think medication is a long-term solution. Um, I think that, mm -hmm. you know, that is just treating a symptom. All we're doing is treating a symptom of high blood glucose. But let's fix the problem, right? And you were talking about mm -hmm. functional medicine. Isn't that essentially what functional medicine is? We treat the problem. So you don't have to just prescribe another drug to treat the symptom. So explain a little bit about functional medicine. So functional medicine, I really like using uh, integrative medicine a little bit more, meaning functional medicine is, is more like naturopathic care, for example, but as a nurse practitioner on and we're able to uh, use some of those modalities. I like integrative 
Uh, right now we're at a clinic because we do Western medicine. We're Western medicine trained, but then we're always able to offer modalities from the functional medicine as well. And so, for example, patient that comes in and they say, I don't want to start on medications, but say they, they already have some indications for it and they are going to walk away, even if I'm Mormon, for example, they're going to walk away, they won't take it because they might have heard some horror stories about metformin um, and or somebody in their face with it and they're just not going to take it, you know, but if I tell them, okay, I'm going to give you some time, I'll give you six months, let's let's have you back in six months, I'm going to remeasure labs, but first we're going to get you started on this program that includes, you know, nutrition counseling, weight loss, um, exercise, and I don't, I don't give them goals that are impossible to achieve, just small goals, goals, small steps at a time. Meanwhile, take a couple of these supplements that actually do work, um, maybe like metformin, maybe even better without the side effects. And so I put them on these natural things. And then six months later, um, I do a, a reevaluation of their maybe pre-diabetes or that state that leads to pre-diabetes. And a lot of them who are willing to work on lifestyle changes are back into normal levels. And, I, and at that point, we create a plan for them to sustain those results. And so my goal is always to catch a problem before it's a problem. Uh, and when I'm able to do that and really balance things out, then I am able to provide them with better quality of life for much longer. And so this is just something that gets missed a lot of times in the sickness model. And because we do have the time to sit down and talk about what's coming. Are you at higher risk for Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, all the other things? Uh, let's prevent that as well. It doesn't just have to be diabetes, heart disease. Uh, those are the biggies for sure. But then we look even farther into when you're 70 plus, what might happen. Um, and for that, we do a nutrigenomic testing, which is, DNA testing from a buccal swab inside the mouth. Um, and we're able to see if patients have different mutations in different areas that have to do with how nutrients get converted in the body from food and get pulled into cells. Mm -hmm. And if there are certain mutations in those areas, then patients are able to know, okay, this is my mutation and this is what I should do in order to prevent it from displaying itself. We call it like on and off light switch. So um, if, if a mutation lights up, then all of a sudden they have a example. Diabetes, once again, is a very easy example. If they have, they probably will have those mutations. We do the test, we see the mutations, we make recommendations. And then um, if, for example, the patient is predisposed to having diabetes, but they lead a healthy lifestyle, they probably will not get diabetes. And then, so that's an easy example of how it works. And same thing with like autoimmune disorders. If you have a lot of mutations in the inflammatory um, inflammatory genes, then you are more prone to getting that lupus or whatever it'll be. And so if we just keep that inflammation turned off like a light switch all along, then that patient is going to do so much better and probably will not even get anything. So we're able to do that as well. And that tends to be affordable. Um, the nice thing about that test is your genes and gene mutations do not change. So once you get your answers, we're able to use that as a blueprint for the rest of the patient's right. treatment. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us a story. I think you have a pretty good story about how you turned a patient's life around with the nutrigenomics um, testing. Can you tell us that story? 
Yeah, so it was nutrigenomic testing and then IV nutrition therapy. We started uh, doing supplements, not just the oral route, but also IV nutrition. And it's known as IV nutrition for hangover, for example, like if you go uh, to, um, you know, big cities and, and or concerts, for example, then you can have signs out there saying, oh, come in for IV nutrition, you can keep right. on drinking kind of thing. So that's replenishing the fluids, replenishing the electrolytes, you know, some vitamins, and it keeps them going. So, but uh, that has been studied and great results with IV nutrition for patients who have different type of problems. And so we were able to bring several of their um, mixes from from pharmacies that mix these together for us, and then we're able to infuse them. But they are supplements, but we do recommend them or we prescribe. This is going to be what you need um, in order to help with this problem. For example, right now, the biggest thing is uh, immunity boost. And so that comes with um, different B vitamins, comes with high dose vitamin C and comes with zinc, for example. So those are the ones we recommend for immune boosting for um, COVID prevention and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Of course, it's all about that immune system, you know. And so um, this patient who came in uh, while I was still a student and she she could barely walk. She was pretty much carried into the exam room by her husband. And, and she's She's been through it all in Western medicine, all the scans, all of the workups in blood. She, she gave it all, basically, in order to figure out what the problem is. And it was like, well, you guys are my primary. Do something. Like, this is just not, like, I can't help. And so um, she got started with nutrigenomic testing. There were some changes that we're able to make. And then by nutrigenomic testing, we found out that she had a very bad detoxification uh, meaning that she has in there to keep all the toxins in the body by them. She got started on IV regimen of um, IV nutrition, so lots of B vitamins and, and C. Uh, I don't think she was getting zinc. Um, and then on top of that, we were giving her high doses of glutathione, which is the antioxidant that is um, that our bodies make and a lot of times if we have those mutations it doesn't make enough of it and so problems start appearing usually after the age of 40 is what we see and the next thing you know the patient is coming in with tremors or with aches and pain and fibromyalgia and all sorts of things that we look at and we're like what's going on well maybe it's just that detox potential that um, they need boosted a little bit. And so that's what we did for her and then replenish nutrients and whatnot. And she was able to get her old job back and there's a family business involved. And so she's very active in that right now. And the only times she comes in, uh, she usually just has a little bit of tremor in her hands and all her other symptoms are gone. Occasionally she goes back and has a little bit of problem with her legs, but usually where she's able to keep on working. And so Right now, we're weaning her off of it, making sure that she keeps on taking the oral, uh, the fluid glutathione on a daily basis, and that kind of keeps her levels up, and she is doing a great job. So her son came in and said, um, can I get that testing as well? I want to know ahead of time if I have some problems. And we were right, able to do that right. testing for him and help him out. Um, yeah, and uh, so it's 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 approach to care that is individualized. It's not like, okay, you have this problem, let's give you this medication because other people did well with that medication. Well, maybe this person won't because they have different mutations and different problems. So that has been one of, one of my stories that I tell just because um, it is so amazing to see her and to see her smile. And when her son came and said, thank you for 
uh, giving my mom her health back. I and mean, wow. that's just yeah. That's that is that's a that's a great story. Very very encouraging. So um, tell us, since you um, escaped from communism, um, tell us a little bit about um, socialism versus communism. So socialism versus communism. Um, I grew up in USSR. So one of the S stands for socialistic republic. Uh, so it was socialism, but it was also communism. So it goes hand in hand. And my understanding is that what happens with socialism is that every country that kind of takes it on is a socialistic country, but then it doesn't always work out that way. Or I should say most of the time it doesn't work out that way. And then the socialistic country turns into a communistic country. And that is because socialism does not work in the country like originally planned. And so socialism is more than democracy. And so that's why, for example, here in the United States, just in the last year, we hear so much about socialism and inequality and making sure that everyone gets uh, the piece of the pie and the piece of the pie is equal, whether they, they work or not for it. You know, it's kind of like, let's just share the wealth. And, and I understand that I, myself being a kind-hearted individual, of course, I want to help everybody and, and their relative, you know. I, I want to make sure that everybody is, is warm and fed and happy. Um, and so I totally understand where it's coming from. But the problem right now is that a lot of people who talk about socialism in the United States are not able to... Um, are not able to understand what the repercussions are. And the repercussions are all in the history. So if we're not studying the history of what happened to certain countries that started with socialism and then moved into communism, because it tends to always track that way. Um, and so if we are not reading about it, if we're not learning about it in school, we are never going to know. And we're just going to repeat history over and over and over again. And so we look at um, socialism, and we think, man, those are great ideas, let's try them. But first, with, without trying them, let's just study what happened in the Soviet Union, let's study what happened in China, let's look at India, who tried communism or socialism at some point in time, and there are many countries, all you have to do is just a simple Google search and start getting into those countries and um, the information about them. And What's interesting is that every single one of them fell. And then every single one of them uh, ended up beginning from scratch, from zero and building up the economy, building up the workforce. And it takes such a long time to get it out of the heads of people who think that they, they have to have the equal uh, part of the pie if they're willing to work for it or not. Uh, it is so difficult. So it's not just... Um, the economy, it's also the psychology of it. Um, and then you have children growing up, and if they don't consider what their um, parents went through important information, they're not going to understand that that is just something you do not want to be a part of. And so they think, oh, that's what our parents have had. Well, why did they screw it up? Like, it used to be so good back in the Soviet Union, why not become that again, why did we even leave it? Because it was just 50 years ago and you have no idea how screwed up everything was from the very beginning of becoming socialistic country up until the point where they fell apart. And so unfortunately right now you have um, 
young adults and the youth are all saying, let's do this. This is the best idea ever, but um, they're not being taught that the history repeats itself. And so socialism sounds better than communism, but socialism most of the time turns into communism. And communism is where you have a dictator or a group of dictator above everything, making the the money. That's what it comes down to. Um, and the last thing I want for my children who are growing up here in the United States as American citizens uh, to go through everything that um, my, my parents, for example, went through in my right. socialistic country. And, and I, that's what I teach I, my kids, and that's what I tell them to tell their kids, their classmates, and make sure that they understand to look for information before saying, hey, let's do this, let's change the world with socialism because it does not work and they're going to screw it up for themselves. And unfortunately we see that already. We see those changes here in the United States and that pull in that direction. And it's sad. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. That's very powerful considering your upbringing and that you came from a communist socialist country. Um, you realize that it doesn't work. So I appreciate you sharing that story. Hopefully many of our listeners and viewers will, um, you know, understand the, you know, how powerful that is coming from your background. So I appreciate you sharing that, Olga. So as we wrap this up, um, Olga, what, what's your passion? What, what what fires you up? Myself being a hearted person and myself being a Christian, I want everyone to know that, to know the happiness of having a family, having a group of friends, and being healthy and happy. So, and and I'm willing to do that, whatever it takes. Friends, I I want to make their life better. If it's at my here, I am to uh, help heal people and help keep well. And so, I what fires me up is really helping people have a positive experience here in life. Wow, I love that. That's a great statement. So, Olga, how do people get a hold of you if they want to have a positive experience? <laughs> it depends on if they want to be my friend or if they want to be um, <laughs> my patient or, or both. <laughs> so, I'm not exactly giving out my personal number, but um, Ready Medi Clinic in East Wenatchee is where I work. Um, and I'm always open for new patients and we're making room for more. So feel free to contact Ready Medi Clinic in East Wenatchee, and I'll be happy to take care of you. So uh, we also take care right of Yeah, there it is. Okay, perfect. Go yeah, ahead. There it is. So we are actually um, taking care of some patients who have been patients of ours here in Wenatchee, and they moved away to Arizona, California, even Florida, um, far away. And so I actually take care of some, some people in Ukraine. Um, not directly uh, through Ready Medi, and so we're able to do a lot of telemedicine and like the labs uh, because we use Quest and it's all over the United States. We're able to get labs drawn over there and triage if they need an urgent care visit. We say you have to go to urgent care locally, but if we're able to do the wellness care via telemedicine, we do it. So I love it. I love it. Well, thank you. Yeah, I love it. Thank you for sharing your story and all your wisdom and knowledge. I really appreciate it, Olga. Um, great, great episode. You really, I think, inspired and encouraged a lot of our listeners and viewers. So um, thanks again for being on. And 
tune in to uh, our show Thursday because we will have Ethne Nance on. She is going to be talking about how hospitals and insurance companies collude in a preferred provider network to rip off the patient. So um, don't miss that. Also, you know, we talked about socialized medicine and uh, Olga talked a little bit about that. And of course, you know, politics and government are involved in that. And I just wanted to remind you that I have a book written all about it. And it's called Sickened, How the Government Ruined Healthcare and How to Fix It. Guess what? The government is not the fix. You are the fix. The individual person is the fix. And you can fix that through not communism, not socialism, but free markets. You do it by being proactive in your health. You also do it by finding good providers like Olga that um, are advocates for you financially. So check out my book. It's on Amazon in Kindle version and in paperback, Sickened, How the Government Ruined Healthcare and How to Fix It. So tune in Thursday for our next episode of Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. Thank you for listening.